Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Welcome back, Ben. It's good to be back with you. Yeah. And today we're going to cover Haggai and Zechariah. Haggai is only a couple of chapters. Zechariah can be divided into more than one book. You know, it's funny. I was thinking, Ben, we have first and second Kings which really weren't more than one book. Then again, I'm not saying they only had one author, right? It's just that whatever, however many authors were put together into Kings became first and second Kings. Same thing with Chronicles. And then we have a book like Zechariah that actually has a Deutero Zechariah, uh-huh. kind of like Deutero Isaiah. And then even there's some themes that line up with third Isaiah and Zechariah. So right. there's all this stuff going on. I'm talking about things here as we come to the end of the library we call the Hebrew Bible, thinking back over the last year now, almost, that we've been doing this. And it occurs to me, you know, we've been talking about where the books fit chronologically and the order that they're in and how their order is different in the Hebrew Bible and the Protestant Bible, which is the one we read from in the Orthodox Bible, the Catholic Bible. You know, you have the apocryphal works that aren't in the King James Bible that we read. But in this case, you know, Zechariah is more like Isaiah, I guess, where there's more than one author and you can kind of divide it up and say, okay, these first chapters are first Zechariah, then you have a second author, different themes, that kind of thing. But backing up to Haggai, we don't really know anything about Haggai. Right. It could be that his name comes from the Hebrew root HGG, and this works again. Arabic is known to you and me, Ben. We don't know Hebrew, but they're sister languages, and we know Hajj. Right. And Hajj is the Islamic pilgrimage, right? Yeah. The, the Muslim pilgrimage to Mecca. Here we have a Hajj back to Jerusalem, right? This is the guy who's leading that pilgrimage back to Jerusalem from exile. So this is an exciting time in the Hebrew Bible. We're going back from exile to Jerusalem and we're going to rebuild the temple. And this is really, really exciting for the people we're reading and the people we're reading about, right? So then you have some chronological notices that are here in the four oracles that kind of tell us, there are clues in this text that kind of tell us, even though we don't know anything about Haggai, when this happened, right? We know this is sort of starting out in the reign of Darius I, also known as Darius the Great, who ruled the Persian Empire between 522 and 486 BCE. And so in the decades after 539, when the Persian king Cyrus, who we already talked about, right, freed the Judean exiles, and they're allowed to return to Jerusalem from Babylon, there's a little more prosperity happening. And there, you know, in these books, you get these oracles and these prophecies of a future time of peace and prosperity. By prosperity, I mean agricultural prosperity, right? And there's some beautiful prophecies here. That's sort of an introduction to Haggai. Do you have anything to add to to an introduction to Haggai, Ben? Well, like you were saying, we we know almost nothing about him. He is mentioned in Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. I recorded with Kyle, I believe it was, on Ezra and Nehemiah. And so we mentioned that both Haggai and Zechariah are mentioned in 
that verse there just in relation with the rebuilding of the temple, which inaugurated this, what we call the second temple period. But, you know, if we go back to Second Chronicles and Isaiah, Cyrus was mostly credited with the building of the second temple. You know, he bankrolled it and sent the people back and so forth like that. But in Haggai, that's not really mentioned. It more focuses on the role of the local leaders, which is Zerubbabel and Joshua. So these are the prominent characters within this narrative besides Haggai himself that are happening in the community that are helping rebuild this temple. Yeah, Cyrus again, the the Persian king. Yeah, he's the king of kings. Yeah, I was trying to say emperor, but he's not an emperor, right? The Persian king. He's not called an emperor. I mean, he did build an empire, but it's just for some reason in the historical record, he's called a king and we don't really get the term emperor for a while. I mean, is emperor really used before Rome much? I don't know. I'm not sure. We talk about Chinese emperors. Yeah, that's true. You know, so it is an empire. It is an empire. And I think that's where I got hung up a little bit because I was thinking, we don't call him an emperor. Uh, We call him a king, but he has an empire, right? Right. And that reminds me of a great quote from Seneca. If you would like to rule an empire, rule over yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to mention one more time about Cyrus that Peter Drucker, the father of modern management, has said that Cyrus is a great leader and that the greatest book on leadership was written about Cyrus, not by Cyrus, but about Cyrus by Xenophon. And that's The Education of Cyrus or Chiropidea. So we have Zechariah, the book of Zechariah seems again to be to have more than one author. We can talk about a Deutero Zechariah. The meaning of the name is It's God remembered. And the implication is God remembered his people. Yeah. Yeah. As, as a Sufi, I practice dhikr, right? And dhikr is remembrance, zikr, right? Yeah. That's remembrance of God, right? So, yeah, in colloquial Arabic we say zikr, right? And so this is Yahweh has remembered actually. So this tells us, or at least suggests, right, that He's a weaver of memories and traditions between the first temple period and the second, right? As we go back into Jerusalem from exile and build a second temple, he wants to tie the two temples together in some way. So we have a beginning of the Judean exiles returning to Jerusalem from captivity in Babylon in 539 BCE. They have this edict of of Cyrus, so-called, that you mentioned, and that's again in Ezra 6, 3 through 5. They're allowed to rebuild the sanctuary in Jerusalem. Cyrus bankrolled that. I didn't I didn't catch that, but he did allow it. Mm-hmm. You're saying he, he also bankrolled it, yes, right? Yes, he did. Yeah. Okay. And then they may have been guided also in this project, right, of, of rebuilding the temple a little bit from the visionary plan that Ezekiel lays out. So in, in Ezekiel 40 through 48, and they definitely were inspired by Isaiah, right? Well, second Isaiah, the author of Isaiah 40 through 55. Again, they're going back, they're rebuilding the temple. It's really exciting times. We had, you know, the pre-exilic period with the prophets. So now prophets have kind of gone away. It's not so much about prophets now, it's about priests. We haven't transitioned fully into, you know, rabbinical Judaism necessarily, right? But we do have an emphasis on priests over prophets now. And Haggai is going to stress that it's so important that we rebuild the temple and that's so that the the elect, right, this restored community of Judah can come back and enjoy the blessings that would come from that. By the way, the the remnant, as we've been calling it, which I don't know, is this the is that related to the the Christian concept of the remnant? Is sort of the the left behind or the something like that? Do you know what I mean? I think you're thinking you know about, about that, uh, the rapture. What you have is you have this Jewish concept of the remnant returning, but then this gets projected into other religious traditions 
as the remnant being something that is like the more faithful sect or community of the people. And right. so with regard to like the rapture, that that would seem counterintuitive because the idea with the rapture is that the most faithful actually get taken up, right? And the people that are left behind are the less faithful ones. So it's different, right? In this remnant, you know, what I can say, one way that I can interpret it as they remain is their identity remains mm -hmm. after the exile, right? The northern kingdom, those guys, those those lost tribes, we call them, they lost their identity. It's not that the people are gone. We don't know where they went. We know where the people went. They went into exile, but they didn't come back with their identity intact. And by the way, if we try to say that there is a Jewish identity, let's call it a Jewish identity, and, and Jew is something that comes up for the first time in this week's reading, that term. So we you and I, Ben, we may have been using it. We've said many times, and it's in the intro to the show, we're not biblical scholars. And so if we use these, you know, if we've been using the terms wrong, we didn't realize that. I didn't realize that. But, you know, we have Jews showing up for the first time. So if there's this Jewish identity or, or, or this identity of the southern kingdom of Judah, yes, there's an identity that's preserved in this text. But is that actually who they were or who the Deuteronomists say they are? or were, hmm. or should be, or something like that, right? Chances are there were this, that, and the other identities, right? Among the people that we call all these people, right? The Northern and Southern Kingdom, certainly there was a difference there, right? You have Northern, Southern, they're separate. Even among those peoples, those two separate peoples, there are other subdivisions, right? They're, they're going to be different cultures, you know what I mean? Not just two different cultures, but multiple different cultures and, and identities, we're not all as homogenous as we like to think we are, even in our tradition, right? Even in its Latter-day Saints, that there's more than one way to Mormon, as I like to say, right? Yeah. But these guys, they want to they give us a sense of an identity that they're at least creating, if not preserving, right? And if they are preserving it, then it's one particular identity out of potentially many, right? At least more than one. Yeah. And this concept of the remnant, as we've discussed before, gets mentioned multiple times with the idea that these are, again, the more faithful part of the people. And so the identity becomes important here because if we go back to Ezra and Nehemiah, the, the remnant that come back to build the temple, there's a point at which they don't even want the people that remained in the land who are, you know, still descendants and would be maybe still a part of the tribe of Judah, technically, they don't want them to participate really with them in the building of the temple because they aren't seen as faithful or maybe they have become unclean and they aren't worthy of building the temple. And so this remnant becomes this more hardcore kernel of identity that is going to light the flame and purify the people, but it has to start there, right? We also talked about this with right. Ezekiel being a Zadokite and the Zadokites believing that they were the priests that did it right. And they were sort of that remnant, even within the Levite tradition, that was the pure, the, the ones that did the ceremonies correctly. And so within Ezekiel, it says, oh, the Zadokites, they're the ones that are allowed to do the ceremonies in the temple and none of the other Levites are, right? And so this concept becomes recycled and reused within different contexts to condense down that essence of the faithful remnant that is going to project and rekindle this identity, this Jewish identity into the future. Yeah. So in the first Zechariah, right? We have one through eight, chapters one through eight. And there are these priestly concerns, right? What we could call hierocratic concerns. 
There's a, a central prophet. He's related to the temple and linked also to Israel's salvation, which of course comes through priestly leadership, through temple worship. And, and then we get a different point of view in Zechariah 9 through 14. This is what we could call Deutero-Zechariah or second Zechariah, right? And so here you don't have so much as the, the same kind of unity, editorially speaking, as you do in the first eight chapters. But there is a pattern of disillusionment with what we thought we were going to get from verses one through eight. And now it turns out, and, and, and also from Isaiah, right? Isaiah puts forward, and this is second Isaiah chapters 40 through 55, that when we come back to Jerusalem, things are going to be this certain way. And now we get that, no, things aren't really turning out the way we expected. And there's this disappointment and we're not going to achieve this priestly Davidic Jerusalem-centered establishment, right? This kind of idea. And so these Deuterozechariah chapters, can I say that? Deuterozechariah? Anyway, <laughs> these chapters from Deuterozechariah, they, they sort of relate to some of the more proto-apocalyptic texts, stuff like Joel and, and Isaiah, maybe 24 through 27, Joel 2, 28 through 321. I'm not 100% confident, Ben, and you know, I've looked at the order of the Hebrew Bible, the Catholic Bible, the Protestant Bible, the Orthodox Bible. They're not the same. I'm paying attention, and we've been talking about as we go through this, about the dates of the books and the order of the books, but I don't have it all. I don't have it all in my head, right? So even, you know, for the listener, if you've been following and, and you're getting all that, but you're not writing it down, we should have written it down too, haven't <laughs> If we just, you know, put it, make a timeline or something. I think I've tried, I don't know if you have, been. I've tried to to come up with a chronological Hebrew Bible, that would be a mess, right? I mean, you have first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles as these historical tellings. And then, by the way, first and second Chronicles, we're coming to the end of studying our Protestant Bible with Malachi after this, right? So you have Haggai and Zechariah, right? And then Malachi, and then we're finished. But the last books of the Hebrew Bible, which are the latest books, are first and second Chronicles. And as you pointed out, Ben, when covering David and Bathsheba, that's not in there. In Kings, we get the story of David and Bathsheba, but in the later book of you know Chronicles, we don't. As we close up the Hebrew Bible, you know, as the as the redactors are putting this together, they're sort of trying to clean up some of the messy stuff that's earlier in the tradition, right? And so that's one example right there where they just don't even include that because it's interesting. I remember reading in, in Kings too. You know, you get that. Solomon's being told to to be good like David. And and I, every time I hear that, I think, well, wait a minute, but David committed <laughs> adultery. <laughs> what are they talking and about? Right? So it helps and, if yeah. you can as right. Yeah. So as you that's right, I forgot about that. That's the to, to to add insult to injury. So when you study this, you have to figure out that and I and we really haven't, right? We we mentioned it. We brought things into focus and as we went along, but as I continue to study this. For the rest of my life, I do love the book, you know, the, the Bible, the library that we call the Bible, some parts more than others, right? I especially <laughs> love Job and Jonah. And then, you know, as once I start making a list, it gets longer and longer because I love reading Genesis and even Exodus and gosh, with Rob Bell, even Leviticus, right? Although I don't know if I really want to do that, but <laughs> definitely not first and second Kings and Chronicles, right? <laughs> but I realize, you know, I've got to really get a handle on this is going to take a few more years. Right. Maybe next time, maybe next time we podcast, you know, four years from now on the Old Testament, we'll have a better handle on it. Sure. So that's it. That's the, that's my introduction for both books this week. 
Let's now go into Haggai and go through this. Just two chapters, right? Yeah. Christopher, you mentioned, you know, chronological order of the books. I mean, there's sort of a distinction here that you could make and you could say, okay, when is this set? Like when is the book set versus when was it written? And that is another difficult distinction. Okay. So there's a couple examples to look at. So for instance, take Esther, the book of Esther. Okay. It's set during the exile, but it's written after. And then take like Daniel. It's written well after, right? We're talking, in fact, the book of Daniel's one of the easiest to date its actual writing of, and it's something like 160 BC, but it's set during the exile with all of these prophecies and things that are happening, right? So 700 years earlier, right? Yeah. So I think, you know, giving a, like a chronological set of the books, yeah, you could definitely say, okay, this is when these things are set and set them out chronologically by when they were meant to take place, right? But then you have these, these footnotes or, or introductions and say, okay, this is set here, but this book was probably written at this time, right? So. Yeah, you bring up a really good point. And that's something that the redactors tried to make this all into one cohesive narrative, even though it's not, and and therefore it doesn't really work, but, you know, they did what they could. And I think even, you know, we can say our Protestant Bible order does have some of that, right? We get some of these stories, like I think Esther shows up in that way. No, not Esther, Ruth, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe even Esther too. So that's a really good point. And, and actually, I, I ran into that, you know, as a homeschool dad, Ben, so many people have asked me, and I'm also a homeschool conference, a frequent homeschool conference speaker, right? And so I get asked all the time in what order to read the books. And I thought, well, that's just, you know, reading the classics, right? That's just so obvious. You read them in chronological order. But as I went into it, as I got into it, as I, I learned more and I read the books and I went through these books with my kids, I realized, oh, wait a minute. What do you mean by chronological order, right? Like it seems so obvious, but it's like, wait. Yeah, the oldest book, you know, in terms of when it's written down is Homer. And by the way, just like the Bible, there's an oral tradition before the writing that's much older. The book I have is the oldest I have, you know, in terms of Greek stuff. But then you get in Roman times, you get the writing of the story of Jason and the Argonauts that comes down to us. And that's from before Homer, the story itself, not the writing. So we actually put that in that order. We put Jason and the Argonauts first and Homer second. And so now with that all figured out, I'm looking forward to my next homeschool conference speaking opportunity coming up in February to share that, you know, to share, because I've been asked this question so many times. And the other question I get all the time is what translation to read. And so these questions, they relate to Bible study too, right? Yes. So we've been talking about this translation question all along too. Yeah. So Haggai is going to discuss primarily two people here, Zerubbabel and Joshua. And Zerubbabel is of the Davidic line of kings, right? So his great-grandfather is Jehoiakim, right? So he was the last king before the the exile. And so- That's his grandfather. Oh, it's grandfather, not great-grandfather. Okay. Yeah. Couldn't couldn't remember which one it was, but it it lists him in a line of people. And so basically, Mm -hmm. he's, he's presented as the heir to the throne. Okay. And then we have Joshua, who is the priest, like the high priest. Right. Presumably, it's Darius who makes Zerubbabel the governor of Judah, right? Right. And and calls him the king, right? He's a governor, but they're calling him a king. Right. And then the other guy's a high priest. Joshua's a high priest. And this is the first time that we get that title in the Old Testament, by the way. Yeah. The term high priest is a, a post-exilic term. 
Yeah. So the main concern here in this book is the rebuilding of the temple. The people have are coming back from exile and they've even been back for a little while and you know there's this whole period of some building being done and then nothing being done. They kind of lay the foundations and then they don't do anything for a while and then they start building some more and Haggai comes and the Lord speaks to him. And he says, hey, why are you guys not building the temple, essentially? you The idea of the people at this time, and when they discuss, when are we going to rebuild the temple, the idea is, oh, well, it's not time yet, right? The time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. And it's not really clear among the people what it is that indicates the time, right? Like, what is it that means it's going to be the time? And so, here comes Haggai as the prophet, and he's saying, why are you people saying that it's not time to build the temple? You're living in paneled houses. And sort of the idea here is that the paneled houses are indicative of the wealth because, you know, like Solomon had the wooden panels in the house. And so that's the, what's the word? And a lot is made of that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get it. And then, you know, it's funny because the, the earlier prophets, they were telling us about how temple worship was wrong, meaning it was being done wrong. They're worried about the, the corruption and the repugnancy of the, the corruption of the cultic worship. Whereas now these guys are telling us you have a different failure. You failed to restore the temple. You know, you haven't even built it. Yeah. So we don't even have a ritual system to get wrong. Yeah. So you're living in these mansions, right? These great palaces while the Lord says, my house lies in ruins. There's a wordplay on the term ruins here. So the Lord comes in and says, my house lies in ruins. And that's why you've been in a drought. And so the word for ruins is hudeb. And the word for drought is horeb. Again, the wordplay here is, as long as my house lies in ruins, you're going to have a drought. Which doesn't have to be a literal drought, right? Sure. And as a matter of fact, what shows up here in this week's reading is, for the first time, is the living waters. These are the living waters that Jesus compares himself to later. And that's flowing from the temple. Right. And then we get the use of the term shalom a lot here in Haggai, and then it's going to come up in Zechariah as well. You know, this is often, we've talked about this, Christopher, a bit. This is often translated as peace, but it also has to do with prosperity and well being and safety. Yeah. And so the idea here is that once the people turn, they rebuild the house, then they're going to have peace. They're going to have well being. They're going to have prosperity because the drought will be over, the land will grow. It will produce its fruits, things like that. And we already have a sense and we've given the listener a sense of how long the exile is. Now that we have people talking about rebuilding the temple and there's the first temple and there are people listening who are old enough to remember the first temple. And Mm -hmm. that means they are at least 73 years old. And that's pretty old for that time, isn't it, Ben? And I'm not saying there are a lot of people who are around who remember this. And of course, if they are wealthier people, that means typically that means they live longer, right? It sounds like we're talking about wealthy people. They're older. They're living in paneled houses. When I say older, I mean they're still alive at 73, right? Yeah. So this comes up in chapter two where it says, who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory? If we go back to Ezra chapter three, uh, Kyle and I had this discussion about when they're laying the foundations of the temple and you have the gathering of the people there, the older people and the younger generation. I'm going to go back to Ezra chapter 3, verse 12. And this was a really interesting point for me in this part. It says, But many of the priests and Levites and heads of families, old people who had seen the first house on its foundations, 
wept with a loud voice when they saw this house, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted so loudly that the sound was heard far away. We kind of had a longer discussion about this, and I would like to refer the listener maybe back to that podcast on Ezra Nehemiah. I'm not sure exactly what number it is off the top of my head. But the idea here is, again, that this older generation is seeing the beginnings of the new house, and it's a moment of mourning and sorrow and, and trauma for them because of the destruction of the old one, right? And that this new one is not as big. It's not as grandiose. And this former glory that once was will never be again. And at the same time, you have the younger generation who's heard all these stories about the former glories of the temple and, and what it was, and it's destroyed now, and they're rebuilding it. And so they're laying these foundations, and it's this moment of great joy and excitement. And these two sounds come together, and they become confounded and, and muddled. And anyway, we, we had a discussion about this concept, and I just thought it was so interesting how that, that mourning and joy kind of played off each other from the older versus the younger generation within this moment. That is interesting. We get in verse 5 of chapter 2, this comparison once again back to Exodus, right? It's always back to the Exodus. According to the promise that I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit abides among you. Do not fear. And there's that do not fear that's so often repeated, right? And it comes, I can think as I, as we come to the end of the Hebrew Bible, the, what we call the Old Testament and the Christian tradition, and start thinking about the New Testament and Christmas coming up, right? It occurs to me that this is what the angels say to the shepherds in the field when Jesus is born, right? Do not fear, right? This is always what God is saying. Do not fear. Fear not. Yeah, that statement is used a lot in the New Testament as well. So verse 9 of chapter 2, Christopher says here, the latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former, which, you know, I thought that was such an interesting statement to have yeah. in the text because it seems like from our perspective, so obviously untrue. Like the older generation that we just talked about that's seeing this, they know that the temple is is not as splendid as the Temple of Solomon, right? This was a time of of greater right. wealth and and finer things which were were all taken and either destroyed or you know taken into Babylon or melted down. They were lost. A lot of these things were lost. And so the this new temple that's being built, there's it's not anywhere near to the splendor of the of the old one. So I just thought this statement was strange. You know, it doesn't seem to have been the case. And maybe right. maybe for the perspective of the people, splendor means something else. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I read it that's possible. I, I read it so they think first of all, you think, okay, God is gonna take action and it's gonna be you know, against the the other nations, and they're going to pay tribute, and this is gold and silver, and we're going to be able to build this great temple greater than the one before. But that's not what happens. And and they're 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 talking about what Third Isaiah says, Isaiah fifty six through sixty six, right? Especially in sixty sixty one sixty six, this idea that so much wealth from other nations is going to flow to Jerusalem, 
And so they're still talking like that. You know, they're getting it from Third Isaiah. They're still talking like that's a thing that's yeah. going to happen and doesn't necessarily happen. Well, they're always anticipating this return to this Davidic kingship and this splendor. And that's, right. that's part of the appeal of bringing up Zerubbabel here is that Zerubbabel and then Joshua as well are going to reign in sort of this – I don't know. There's like a co-kingship almost going on here, right? What do yeah. they call it? Like a biarchy, not a monarchy? I don't know if it's called that, but that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, in verse 14, we get – this is – you hinted at this earlier, Ben. You have the people of Judah are unclean, right? And so, they're compared to a corpse in some sense. They can't make offerings acceptable to the Lord. No way, no how, because everything they do – that includes their agricultural produce, right? The work of their hands, as it says in the text, is unclean. They don't tell us, we, we don't get from the text the source of the uncleanliness, but it seems to be clear that that they're ritually impure, and so they can't do these things. And so something's going on. Yeah. And that's Haggai. Do you have anything else in Haggai? Right at the end, the Lord is speaking and he says, I will make you my servant. You, know, you give him a signet ring. This is... Probably almost right. certainly referring to Zerubbabel. It's implying a Davidic kingship that's going to happen, but we don't really know what happens to Zerubbabel. You know, he doesn't really come to anything in terms of a kingship. It's pretty safe to say that the Davidic kingship was not reestablished at this time. There is a period of some relative independence of the people at the Maccabean revolt against the, the Greeks. Antiochus or Antiochus. I, I don't know if I even pronounced it right last time we, we did it, but <laughs> there's not a true kingship really reestablished in, in the Davidic or, or Solomon sense. Is he the one they say is a governor and was called a king? I was trying to go back through my notes here. Yeah. And, yeah, and so yeah. He gets called a king, right? Yes. But he's really a governor appointed probably by Darius, right? Right. right. So, of course, to say he's a king, now it sounds more like, okay, he's from the Davidic line, he's the king, voila, right? Prophecy fulfilled. Yeah. And this is how it works. Right? And we're, and by the way, that doesn't mean somebody's lying to us or making stuff up. It's just we're looking for things to appear the way that they are supposed to appear. And so, however they appear, we see them the way yeah. they're supposed to appear. And this happens all the time. This is how you misread stuff. Because you, you already know what it says. Well, there's this constant anticipation that the, of the return of the king, the rebuilding of the temple. And so, if something comes up that's like, oh, it looks like this might be the thing, then, you know, this must be the thing. That's so. exciting, right? And actually, what I said, I mistook in what I said, because it's not that you misread. You can actually read something correctly that you wrote incorrectly, you know, proofreading your own paper in school or something, right? You, you mistyped it, but you know what it's supposed to say, so you mm. read it right. And so mm. that's how we tend to see sometimes our senses are somehow fooled, right, by our wishes, our desires. Mm. That's an interesting idea. Yeah. So that's it for Haggai, right? Yeah. Only two chapters of Haggai, 14 chapters of Zechariah. We've given the introduction, so we can just go into the text. It's interesting because right away in, in 1 6, you have that they, the people repented. And that repentance that's spoken of is literally a return. So now it's, again, a play on words, right? The return, the repentance is equated with the return to Jerusalem. They returned in two senses, one because they repented, another because they went back to Jerusalem. And by the way, this is funny. There are certain you know, commentaries that I actually wanted to read. I, I was reading this, just reviewing this over dinner tonight. 
before recording, and I shared this with my daughter. Though the prophets often called for repentance or return, right? It is not often reported that repentance occurred. <laughs> so the Bible tells us, you know, we have all these references, you know, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, you know, people are being called to repentance, but we never hear that they actually repented, right? That's not Well, mentioned. that's the point of Jonah, right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Is that Jonah is this parody on thing where it's like typically a prophet goes and says repent and the people don't repent. Jonah goes and says repent and the people do and Jonah's like, "Wait, that wasn't supposed to happen because when prophets right. tell people to repent, they're not supposed to repent. They're supposed to get destroyed. And so Jonah's all upset about, wait, am I really a prophet? Maybe I should die, you know? <laughs> That's a really good commentary on Jonah. I wanted to mention something, a little particularity, a little curiosity, right? Verse 7, we have Shabbat here, and then later on in chapter 7, verse 1, so 1, 7, and 7, 1, you get these two different month names, Shabbat and Shislev, right? And these are the earliest uses in the Hebrew Bible of these month names that are actually Babylonian. And they eventually become accepted and part of the Hebrew calendar. And I just thought that was curious because it's a lot like our calendar. We, you know, we had a lunar calendar as early Christians that came from, you know, our Jewish heritage. And then the Romans come and they give us a solar calendar. And the names of the months that we have come from Roman emperors, right? So it's really different from what we had. And in the Islamic tradition, this idea of a lunar calendar is preserved. I'm not sure about the Jewish tradition, but this is why the month of Ramadan, which is actually the name of a month in the, in the Islamic calendar, moves around in our Gregorian calendar. And you can see why you would take on the names of Babylon when you're in Babylon and how they would end up staying with you and, and how the same thing happened to us with these Roman month names, right? You can see how this would happen because going back to the, the Muslim example, it's really hard to plan ahead for Ramadan when you don't know what's going to be. The idea is you're supposed to sight the new moon. But some people, among Muslims, I mean, they want to calculate when Ramadan, which can be done mathematically, right? But there's a case to be made in Islamic law that, no, you can't calculate it. You have to actually sight the moon. And I think this is an important point for us as Christians, too, because we're told in our scriptures that we should be looking to the heavens for signs, and we're not. We're looking at our watches and our iPhones and hmm. our calendars, and you see what I mean? Yeah. And we're not looking up. We may be missing something. Instead of observing what nature says about what's going on, we're looking towards our own creations and mathematical calculations. Yes. That's in a sense, right? Like relying on the arm of flesh. The way you said that, it just made me think of that wording and also of the, the idea of trying to make an alliance with Assyria instead of turning to God or whatever, right? Yeah. And then the other thing that shows up right away in, in verse 8, you have a red, a sorrel, and a white horse, right? By the way, horses again, right? I, I, I keep thinking oh, to myself, yeah. I've got to read that book on horses that I mentioned <laughs> last time. But here, you know, these could have symbolic value. They actually reminded me of the white horse prophecy from our tradition, which is spurious at best, you know, but seems to have hung around for some reason. And there could be symbolic value to the colors, but it could just be these are the colors of horses that are known in the ancient Near East. And it's that, that's it, right? Nothing else. It can, and so if that's the case, then that could have implications also for the white horse prophecy, for the other horses in Revelation we'll get to eventually at the end of the New Testament. A year from now, right, Ben, will be at the end of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So I just, I noticed that. I thought that was curious, you know. And then, of course, in 112, we get the same lament again, psalmist language, right? We saw it in Joseph Smith. How long are we going to suffer, God? Come on. 
where are you, right? Are you, <laughs> are you not aware of our suffering? God is omniscient, except he doesn't know about our suffering, right? Yeah, the, the couple things here with chapter one, first off, you know, Christopher, you mentioned horses. That was one of the things I was going to bring up, mostly because you mentioned it last time. You kept talking about horses, horses, and I thought, okay, there's something here. And then I started reading Haggai and then Zechariah, and I was talking about horses so much, and I thought, is it really yeah. talking about horses more, or do I just, am I just real, am I just seeing this because Christopher brought up horses last time. You know, it's almost like you buy a new car and then you see that car everywhere, right? You know? <laughs> no, I really do think it became a, a prominent theme even more than last time when I brought it up. But you know, Ben, there's something, the reason it speaks to me in the way that it is and I, uh, that it does, and I'm not sure that I've been able to really articulate it, is there's something mystical about these horses. And it occurs to me, just now occurred to me that it could have something to do with the pre-Socratics, Parmenides and Empedocles in the Western tradition. By the way, Greece shows up in this week's reading for the first time. We're getting to a point where Greece is becoming this empire, right, that's mentioned in the Bible. But if I could just read a passage, Ben, from, from Parmenides and Empedocles... It's right at the beginning of Parmenides. I said Parmenides and Pedicles because I have them here both translated in verse in the same book, right? But it's really, they're two different philosophers. This is really early Greek philosophy, pre-Socratic, like I said. It's interesting because the Western philosophical tradition took on this really rational bent, but the origins of it really seem to be more mystical. So listen to this from the beginning of Parmenides, what comes down to us. The horses that take me to the ends of my mind were taking me now. The drivers had put me on the road to the goddess, the manifest way that leads the enlightened through every delusion. There's more, right? Horses, mm. mares, it goes on. There's something mystical about this, about these, these horses, for sure, in, in Permenides, right? But I just sense that somehow, too, when I read from, from the Bible, you know? I wonder if the idea... And imagery and symbolism of horses has now become more prominent within the the Jewish mind at this period because they've been taken into exile and and conquered by you know other peoples and then brought back and so the the idea of moving around and transport is much more within their mindset whereas they were kind of you know tried to stay in their own land previously that was where God was, right? Yeah. Why would they go anywhere else? And so, now that they're transporting back and forth, and then we saw in Ezekiel that God was mobile and came to them, right? Had wheels and and chariot and stuff like that. We're seeing that, oh, this, this movement back and forth, this power that a horse has, the speed that it has to, to go from one place to another now becomes an important symbol that can be then used to convey other concepts within the prophecy or, you know, just within maybe a mystical tradition or just a, a prophetic symbolism. I love that, Ben. Yeah. Those are some good thoughts. The book I mentioned earlier that I think now, gosh, I've got to read this book. I'm going to have to bump it up the list. Winged Stallions and Wicked Mares, Horses in Indian Myth and History. Hmm. And there's some, it's from a, a series called Richard Lectures and it's by Barbara Stoller Miller, I believe, who's one of my favorite translators of the Bhagavad Gita. One of the other overall things here to think about with Zechariah that's kind of unique is that, especially with these first eight chapters that are what we call first Zechariah versus the, the others that we might call second Zechariah, is he's having these visions. Well, they're not exactly visions like the, the Lord says, you know, what do you see? Or the angel comes and 
Zechariah doesn't really even understand what he's seeing. The angel has to explain it to him. This is another interesting thing about this book too, is because it's an angel that's showing him these things, whereas some of the other prophets, it's God directly speaking to them. Whereas in this one, it's it's an angel as opposed to to God. Could it be an angel of the Lord as, you know, someone added angel of? We've talked about that, right? It could be, you know, but there are some clues in this that indicate that maybe it is an actual angel. So if we go to verse nine of chapter one, Zechariah addresses, and this happens multiple times in it because he's asking, what are these, my Lord? He says, and it's a little L Lord, right? And so he's he's speaking to the angel with some sort of honorific term. And then the angel says, I will show you. And so again, there's there's all these cases of these these different things that he's seeing, and he doesn't even understand what he's seeing, much less what it means, right? These other prophets, they're going to say, oh, I see this, and then they get the interpretation. Zechariah doesn't seem to even understand for the most part what it is that he's seeing at all. Yeah. You know, another thing that occurs to me, Ben, when it comes to the Back to the, you know, the horses, there's also the number four shows up. Yes. We talked about the number four, you know, and, and there's sometimes there are prophecies I can think of where you get horses and the number four and right. Maybe even the white horse prophecy. If I, I'm not sure I remember correctly, but the point is these four, right? You have in 119, right? The horns, the four nations that oppressed Israel, right? And they're, they're mentioned as, as the number four, they're not identified, but they're they're numbered as four, right? There, it's mentioned that there are four of them, and it could just be that four just means total, right? We've talked about this. Four is just quaternity symbolizes a wholeness or a totality, mm-hmm. just like the the four elements, right? Everything is made of earth, wind, fire, and air. And I recently read, and I'd seen the show Cooked on Netflix, but it comes from a book by Michael Pollan. And he divides his book that way, right? He's dealing with, you know, air. This is where the yeast comes from that we make bread out of. I think with water, he deals with brewing or fermenting, right? And then fire with cooking, obviously, right? He he actually goes into barbecue, meaning I don't want to go into it because everybody thinks they have the only true and living barbecue upon the face of the earth and they all critique each other and they all cheat nowadays, but their cheats are allowed and everybody else's aren't. It's kind of fun, but that's how it goes. And you even get four blacksmiths too, right? And 20 through 21. In the commentary that I read, you know, we get these four blacksmiths or these divine agents who are going to destroy oppressive foreign powers. So you have four foreign powers that oppress, and then you have the four blacksmiths who are going to deal with them. So it could just be symbols, right? Yeah. There's a later in chapter six with the four horses, these correspond to the four cardinal directions. And so there's also that right. in north, south, east, again, west. Again, a totality. So yeah. Yeah. That's that's a totality again, right? Yep. Because if you have all four directions of the cart of the compass rose, well, okay, it's interesting because that's not everything because you have northwest and you have north by northwest and, and <laughs> west by northwest, right? But but we we ter- we tend to think in terms of north, south, east, west. That's it, right? That's yeah. everything. That's yeah. the four corners of the earth, as yeah, it were. We even say so that again, yeah. symbolism, right? Because that's not the reality. The reality is. 360 degrees or subdivided further, you know, you have minutes, hours, degrees, right? But symbolically speaking, quaternity means wholeness or totality. In chapter two, the thing that stood out to me in this chapter was in verse 11, it says, many nations shall join themselves to the Lord. And then says, and they shall be my people. 
this got kind of cosmopolitan, like you've said, Christopher. This is interesting because for the longest time, this this Jewish or Israelite identity was of the peculiar people. These were the people of the Lord, and and they were different from others. The other people had their gods, but this was our God, right? And conversion wasn't really a thing. Right. Right. You maybe had these stories of, of kings or whatever talking about, oh, the Lord is, is really God and, and people should make sacrifices and worship to him. But that was more just like paying homage, not so much like converting to the religion itself. But then here we, we start having this idea that, wait, actually people are going to be joining this and all going to be under the canopy of, this religion, so to speak, of worship of the Lord. So th- this is an interesting. Is it an innovation? I'm not sure. I mean, as we inch closer to the to the New Testament, we're seeing this more mm-hmm. and more. And you know, it's all to do with the Day of the Lord, which again is not really. It's not really clear. It shows up a lot, and in certain prophets only. Right. This is another book where we see the Day of the Lord as a prominent theme. I don't know that I know what that means, Ben. So we think of it sometimes in terms of the day of judgment. Great and dreadful right? day, but sometimes that's not, you but, say. Yeah. Right. But that's not what we're seeing here. What we're seeing here is this time that's coming when all these Gentile nations, as you mentioned, Ben, are going to be, you know, worshiping the same God we are. And that's one of the descriptions. Might right? be a, a millennial type of concept within our idea. Oh, it's going to be a time when God really is reigning and everybody's going to recognize yes. every knee shall bow type of thing, right? Exactly. And by the way, we get in verse 12 the Holy Land. First time ever mm. that that we get that. Although it can be found in Second Maccabees, also in Wisdom of Solomon. So that shows up in the Apocrypha, but it's the first time here in the Hebrew Bible that we get this expression, the Holy Land. And backing up to verse 6, Ben, north, back to the cardinal points, right? Uh. So north is just the location, generically speaking, of where Israel's enemies are. And we mentioned this before. Yes. It's because, well, they don't come from the water and they don't come from the desert. They're coming from the north. And so it's also where we return from, from diaspora, right? So it's all about north and south in this part of the world. Yeah. So the Exodus was returning or coming out of Egypt, which was from the south. And then now we have a time where you're coming back from the north because, again, we talked about how that's the way that the enemies come. So the concept of north actually ends up becoming symbolic as well of the return or where the enemies are coming from. Exactly. That that was exactly my point, Ben. So, by the way, if 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 the listener's not familiar with what this part of the world looks like, I call it this part of the world, right? We have maybe this is a good time to mention because I think we tend to forget this. We have maps in our standard works, right? Yeah. This is a good time to look at a map if you haven't done so. So in Zechariah 3, verse 1, we get Satan, right? It actually says in the NRSV, Satan. But in the Hebrew, it's the Satan. The Satan. And usually yeah. this is how it goes in the Bible. We saw this in Job. We talked about it. The Satan, the Satan, with a definite article, the, that's a member of the divine council. It's the accuser. He's the prosecuting attorney. His job is to go around and find people to accuse and, you know, who's doing wrong and whatnot. That's what we mean by the Satan. The only time that we get Satan without a definite article in the Old Testament, that is, in the Hebrew Bible, yeah. is First Chronicles 21.1. So when we say the Satan, this is a role that someone is playing, an office that they're occupying, right? So like, like we That's say right. the prosecutor or the judge, right? These are roles or right. offices that these people are acting within. As a member of the divine council, this is the Satan, the accuser, the adversary. 
Yeah. Exactly. Whereas in First Chronicles 21.1, we just get Satan with a capital S, so to yeah. speak. And again, I say that. It's like right here in, in, in this verse, the NRSV itself, with the footnote explaining that this is actually not Satan with a capital S, still gives us Satan with a capital S. <laughs> so when you see Satan in your Bible, you should go look at the interlinear text and find out if it's Hasatan. And yeah. you can see that because it's, it's Romanized. It's written in our alphabet in addition to the Hebrew alphabet. And you can read clearly here, Hasatan, the Satan. You know, there's another parallel passage in Second Samuel 24.1, where you get the, the testing, right? The, the function of testing coming from Satan or the Satan. And again, I already mentioned Job, right? Job 1, 6 through 12. And we talked about that when we talked about Job. So, Christopher, maybe I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here. Talk about the significance okay. of that being a title or a role or an office versus the name of a particular person. Why is it important for us to understand that this is the Satan, maybe particularly yeah. within the context of this actual verse or these verses, but then the broader context of the Bible? You know, I wasn't thinking in terms of these verses. That's the only place where I'd feel put on the spot, Ben, and, and maybe you can speak to that since you brought it up. But, you know, for me, the thing that's important to realize here when it comes to the different contexts, not just this one, but, you know, as we mentioned, Job and whatnot, is that we have a sense in our understanding today, and I'm not sure exactly how much this comes from the New Testament, or, or we might be surprised to find Hasatan there too. We, we haven't gotten there yet. We're not biblical scholars. We're going there next, right? But what I do know is that this Hasatan comes from the kingly court from Persia, right? This is the origin of it. You know, we have this idea that there's this being that is equal and opposite to God, which by the way, for I remember my first philosophy professor who dubbed me a philosopher, asked me once at lunch, we had lunch together a lot, and he asked me if I believed in Satan. And I actually did, and, and now I actually don't. And he just didn't think Satan as an actual being made any sense. And he's a Christian, right? He's an evangelical Christian, because God is all-powerful. And you're, you're saying somehow that there's this other all-powerful being, but opposite. And what does that mean? He knew and I, then, and I know now, that, that there's this Manichaean idea that comes from Zoroastrianism or from Mazdaism or somewhere in between there, right? I don't actually know Zoroastrianism and Mazdaism well, but there's this character in those religions that the people were talking about when they were in exile, when they were under Persian rule, they came into contact with these ideas. Really, there's both, right? They came into contact with the, the, the Satan from the, ki from the king's court, and they also came into contact with a capital S Satan without a, a definite article in front of it. That's this Manichaean figure, right? Where you have the dark and the light, and they're in a constant battle. It's in our tradition, right? And this is, I think, where it comes from. And so why is that important to us? It has something to do with our nonviolent reading, doesn't it? So I would say that within the broader Christian tradition, but even the Latter-day Saint tradition, I'm not sure that there really is a solid concept of Satan being equal and opposite. There's certainly a sense in which Satan is not equal. Like even within the New Testament, we have Jesus has power over Satan, right? And so I'm not sure that there's this equality. Well, okay, but we say he is all evil, Ben, right? Just like God is all good. That's what I mean. Obviously, mm. the power to build up, as I, this is how I always talk about it, the power to build up 
it takes more to build than it does to knock down, mm. right? Anybody can knock down. You can be an older kid that has the skill and dexterity and know-how and imagination to build something high out of blocks or cards, as we tend to do as kids. And then there can be a younger kid who just comes in and just knocks it down. Anybody can do that. So they're not really equal, right? They're, I only meant equal in the sense that they're polar opposites, right? Yeah. The, one is all evil. The other is all good. And it just sounds, well, Manichaean. Yeah. So, Christopher, I think one of the points to bring up here in terms of our project of Latter-day Peace Studies, and, and Shiloh and I went into this in Doctrine and Covenants when we came across the topic of Satan, is that you know whether or not somebody conceptualizes Satan as a particular person you know, that has a name of Lucifer, whenever we encounter this concept, one of the the very useful ways that we were able to take this is to look at ourselves, right? Because right. if we put all of the evil that exists within the world or the universe upon an individual that's outside and foreign to ourselves, if we just put that all on him, then there's no introspection, there's no consideration of where we actually stand and, and our role within the world, both to do good and to do evil. Yes. One of the most profound ideas for me on this was Solzhenitsyn, where he says, you know, that the line between good and evil passes through the heart of every man. And so, yes. bringing in that definite article says something profound when we say the Satan. What we're meaning here is that you can at times act as the Satan, right? When you're acting as an accuser or as an adversary, then you are putting yourself within that role. Even if you're acting as an adversary to yourself. Exactly. Yeah. You're accusing yourself. You can be, you know, divided within yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that's a really good point. And, and this is where Carl Jung goes with it, right? The psychologist, disciple of Freud, parted company with him on not exactly this point, but on a related point, right? And so, for Carl Jung, there's a shadow self. And this is something we talked about with guest Morgan Aldis on one of our sister podcast episodes on Latter-day Contemplation. We have an episode called The Shadow on Shadow Work. And the idea is that evil that's possible in the world, as you put it, is possible within me. If somebody can do it, anybody can do it, right? I'm human. Nothing human is alien to me, right? This is how Erasmus put it. So I'm capable of this evil. In the episode with Morgan Aldous, the idea came up and it was something that occurred to Riley in the moment, Ben. These are some of the best conversations, right? Because these are organic conversations. We ask Morgan on, we have a conversation and it occurs to Riley, wait a minute, repentance isn't just about the things that I have done or haven't done, but what I could have done or might do. So there are certain things that just I'm not going to do because I'm not in a position where I feel like I have no other choice, which is always false anyway, right? Because I have a choice. Victor Frankl said that they can take away everything but your power to choose, your response, right? Which he, this is something that is in Epictetus too, right? In the Enchiridion, the Stoic philosopher Epictetus. So that potential to do evil is within each of us. And we have to deal with that in terms of, and we can do some sort of preemptive repentance in some sense, right? You know, within the context of these verses here, Christopher, this plays out in an interesting way. So the Satan comes and stands there to accuse Joshua, this guy. And, and the Lord said to Satan, this is verse 2, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a brand plucked from the fire? 
Now Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes, and he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. And to him he said, See, I have taken your guilt away from you, and I will clothe you with festal apparel. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with the apparel, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Which could be the Lord, by the way. Yeah. So the idea here is that, again, Satan falsely accuses him, or maybe maybe doesn't even falsely accuse him, but the Lord steps in and says, no, it's just uncleanliness. We can take care of that. And so the Lord says, your accusation, it isn't going to stand. It doesn't stick, right? Yeah, yeah because he stick. can be purified. Yeah. He can be purified. And so we have in verses two through three, and we can compare that with Isaiah four, three through four, that the filthiness of Jerusalem is actually purged by fire. Yeah. Fire. So when we see fire, this is a symbol of purification. And this is really important to a nonviolent reading too, right? Because you get the impression that God is burning people. Hmm. Well, yeah, he's <laughs> purifying them, right? That's the idea. Yeah. And light. That's another motif that shows up here, which again contrasts with darkness in that that Manichaean view, right? Yeah. You know, something interesting comes up in the next verses here as well, Christopher. So verse six. Then the angel of the Lord assured Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Okay, so the setting of this is the court, right? This is the the divine court. And the Satan is there, the accuser. And then you also have the rest of the divine council that are present. And they're the ones that it says, you know, they're the ones that are taking off the filthy clothes and putting on the clean ones. And then the last statement here is, I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Okay. So what's happening is that the Lord is giving Joshua a place on the divine council. Now, this is quite a statement. It made me think of Abraham chapter three within our Pearl of Great Price, where we have this, you know, all of the noble and great ones gathered and and the Lord says, Abraham, right. you were one of these, right? And and all of these are, are, are talking and, and you're part of this divine council. I just thought it was interesting here that Satan was there to accuse them. And God not only comes and says, I'm going to purify you so Satan doesn't have anything to accuse you of, but not only that, you're going to become part of my council. Beautiful. And I'm going to raise you to that status. I mean, that was astounding to me that 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 was there. That is astounding. It really is. That's beautiful, Ben. So chapter four, we've got the mention of the branch, which is probably Zerubbabel. Again, we're talking about Zerubbabel and Joshua here. There's a point where it talks about anointed ones. It's misleading in the translation because in the Hebrew, it doesn't say anointed ones. It, It says the two sons of the oil which, yes, implies anointing, but for some reason, there's an avoidance of the messianic term here. And I couldn't help but think that that was maybe for political reasons. There was sort of this hesitancy to say Zerubbabel is, you know, the the Davidic Messiah here. And so, there was sort of like this roundabout way of saying these two sons of oil, maybe hinting at it, but if anybody came out and said, oh, are you saying he's the Messiah? You know, they'd say, oh, no, 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 that's not what I said, you know? (laughs) Even though they, they meant it, maybe. Yeah, so I mean, yeah. I'll buy that, but I really do think that actually what's being put forward here is that he is the Messiah. Yeah. 
And so, and when I say the Messiah, again, in a Christian context here and, uh, you know, Latter-day Peace Studies or Latter-day Saints, we think that, you know, Jesus is the Messiah. Well, okay, Jesus is the Messiah, but the Messiah isn't only Jesus. And right. so, we have multiple Messiahs and multiple This is the Messiah of, of that time, yeah, for, the, for their yeah, concept. I think yeah. it's clear that he's the Messiah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I really do think so. So, Ben, in chapter 5, we get the most exciting thing since the scroll that Ezekiel ate. Now, it's a, fly, <laughs> a giant flying scroll. I mean, yeah. this thing is... A cubit is about it's 18 inches. like a flying inches. carpet more than a scroll. Yeah. Well, this is a 30 by 15 foot scroll. Yeah. You can't actually read this thing. Well, it's written on both sides too, right? Yeah. I mean, you can't unroll it or handle it and it's flying. It's not held by human hands. This is really strange. You know, the King James Version doesn't say a scroll. It says a flying roll. Oh. Which it was always sort of a joke. Bread. Yeah, exactly. It was always a joke. There's a restaurant- called Lambert's Cafe, and they do the throwed rolls, right? So, a flying roll. They've got rolls being thrown all over the restaurant. I also have heard this in context of a joke about, you know, TPing someone's house, right? You throw the roll and it's flying oh. through the air. A flying roll. There you go. Yeah, so, scroll is definitely okay, a better this translation is a scroll. than yeah. flying roll. <laughs> It really is. Yeah. I mean, I could just picture a food fight at Thanksgiving or something, you know? So, what do you make of this flying roll or scroll? Well, what seems to be going on here is remember, especially when we got to Ezekiel, the written word, especially in the second temple period and and moving more towards the third and second and first centuries, the written word is becoming more canonized, more authoritative than these oral traditions in many ways. I should say the oral tradition is still authoritative, but the written word becomes very important to establishing the identity of the people. And so this flying role that is, you know, kind of spread over the earth, it says it goes into, it says something about like it goes into their houses and everything, right? So this is establishing the word of God. Maybe we're talking about the, the Pentateuch. The spreading here. of it, maybe? Yeah, over the whole earth. Right. This is establishing his as as the law. When I say it's the spreading of the word, it reminds me of the, you know, at least one of the Arabic verbs for publishing is spreading. Right. It actually actually has to do with, and we say this too, the publish peace. Right. That means to proclaim peace all over the place. Right. Hmm. So you're spreading it around. So that, that's a that's a good interpretation. I like that. The, I only have one other thing to say about this chapter, Ben. That's from eight through nine. You know, chapter five verses eight through nine. It says, this is wickedness. It's interesting because Israel's sin is personified as a woman. So you think, okay, here we go again with the misogynism, right? But then it turns out that the the female imagery for evil is then offset, right? Because now next you get this vision of the cleansing power of the two women, right? With yeah. the wind in their wings who carry this basket away. So, And they're not cherubim, right? They're, they're women right, with wings. Yeah. yeah. They're women with wings, yeah. So you, on the one hand, you have evil personified as woman. On the other hand, it's cleaned up by two women. I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> That's all I've got. <laughs> so chapter six, Christopher, we talked about the horses already, but there was one part here in verse five of chapter six that is an interesting concept of this word ruach that we've brought up multiple times, and it and it just kind of highlights it here. So it's the four winds to the north, south, east, west, but this could be translated as the four spirits as well. Right. And so, again, we're we're talking about God's creation or his spirit or his breath being 
pour it out or, or push it in all directions to, to totality of the earth, right? Everywhere, once again, right? Yeah, everywhere. Yeah, that's a good point. I like that reading. So, in verse 13, you mentioned earlier, right, the two kings, right? Was that a question or were you sure about that? I can't remember. Well, there was some commentary to this fact that there was sort yeah. of a shared rule between Zerubbabel and Joshua and it was you know sort of the rise to more prominence of the of the priesthood within the people that that the king himself wouldn't be able to wield enough authority and so you were going to combine the king this monarchy with the priestly tradition and through that you were going to be able to rule the people better and i think that's a good reading ben that's what i wanted to get at is that here in verse 13 of chapter 6 we get a priest by his throne quote unquote which really does suggest this bicameral polity right this is where we are post-exile, right? We don't have the prophets. We're no longer going to be happy with just a king. We have the priests who are setting the tone of this new culture. I call it a new culture that they're restoring, right? But it seems, again, what do I know about the identity of the, the peoples that became these people before they left? As you point, already pointed out, even when they came back, the people that are still there, they don't want anything to do with them, right? That's a different identity. We have this new old identity that we're putting forward. And this is typical, right? It's, I think we can say this is like, we always romanticize the past. Things were better, right? In the past. Mm. And so you guys stayed here while we were gone and you moved on. What we want to do is go back to the past. And so we, we're not interested in this moving on business. We yeah. want to go back to the past. So it's a tendency that we have, right? To the good old days, right? Yeah, the good, old days. the good old days. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that theme is actually continued within chapter seven, Christopher. And one of the major parts that stood out to me in this chapter was that there are some some alternate reasons given for the exile that are somewhat different from what the Deuteronomists say in terms of yeah. you know the perspective of worshiping other gods. That's right. And that's in verses 9 and 10. I, I love these verses. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the orphan, the alien, or the poor. And do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And then later in the verses, it goes on to say that your failure to do that was what brought about the exile. Yeah. We get, again, pure religion, right? True religion, pure religion, undefiled. Yeah, the pre-exilic prophets are you know, talking about Israel's public piety being hypocritical. And I think this is, again, you know, that's in 7-7. By the time we get to verses 9 through 10, it's all about these true acts of piety, right? That we would have these things that you mentioned starting with mercy, right? All these other righteous acts get named and, you know, enumerated as you did. And that's this isn't the first time we've seen that, right? And it's funny too because it seems like there and obviously there are different voices in in this not even book, but library, right? But we get it seems like it's so important to some of our authors that we perform all these pious, you know, performances. And to others, no. God mm. is saying, I don't care about that. I want you to be nice to each other. <laughs> Take care of people. <laughs> Take care of your brother. Yes, you are your brother's keeper, right? Or that those things are only important insofar as you take care of one another and you do these things that it says, you know, that you you love truth and peace as we get to in in chapter eight. These other performances and rituals are only useful and good insofar as they protect those things and you have those things happening. And if you don't have those things happening, then 
all those performance and rituals, don't you do you any good at all. In fact, it can be counterproductive. That's a really good point. I think you speak to the the esoteric and the exoteric, right? Right. Even when you said protect, the outer kernel protects the inner shell. Obviously, you know, well, I say obviously, it's not obvious to, if you go down to LA, you can find lots of gurus to teach you how to meditate, right? That kind of thing. But you get the sense that, oh, if I just get this teacher, I'm going to meditate and I'm going to become enlightened or something. Hmm. Well, I don't automatically, I don't know any of those people, right? But there is a tendency, you know, of, of living that's not necessarily moral living. So there's a sense in which the exoteric practices give us moral living and that prepares us. And, and again, it's preparatory and it's only useful as preparation for the esoteric. They prepare us to be able to get close to God. They don't get us close to God. Right. They just get us in a place where we're prepared to get close to God. And so we perform these pious practices, these outward practices as an outer shell to protect this inner kernel. But if we don't have the inner kernel, then it's just an empty shell. That actually reminds me of the way that we do our temple rituals where there's all these outward things, but then at the end, right, we're presented at the veil. And that's when we enter into the presence of the Lord. And all of these other things are just preparation for that time. Chapter 8, verse 12 there shall be a sowing of peace. So this peace here is, is shalom. It's the prosperity. This made me think, you know, the sowing is you, you do something now and then you you hope to reap that reward later. It made me think of peace or shalom as a project and it takes time to cultivate it in our hearts and our communities, right? It's not just like all of a sudden there. We can't just say it's there, right? It, it, it's, a, it's a project. The project of peace. Yeah. I think I said earlier that Jew shows up for the first time here. Now that I'm looking at my notes, that's not exactly it. It is true that it doesn't come until late in the Old Testament period, but it's also showing up in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. I was going to say, I know it's in Esther because it talks about Mordecai the Jew. That's right. Yeah. So Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Daniel, and here. But only in these later books, right? And yeah. th by the way, that was another peek at the chronology of the books, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, you know, for me and my personal study, getting a handle on that chronology just seems like it'd be really helpful, you know? <laughs> you and I were looking ahead at the Come Follow Me curriculum for the New Testament, where the Gospels, instead of taking them one at a time, parts of them are compared with other parts. You could do a, chronolo a chronological reading of the Old Testament that way if you could figure it out by bringing in, again, a lot of the historical context for some of the prophetic books comes from Kings and Chronicles. So you could do that, right? But I'm really glad we didn't. I don't know how you would do something like that with Psalms or Proverbs, right? Like that would be... Yeah, you can't you can't always do that, but and I'm glad we didn't do that. But <laughs> that's one approach, right? To try to figure out what goes with what. Use your cross references. Get yourself a study Bible where you have more or different cross references, right? Not all the cross references that we find in our study Bible are found in our standard works, and so it's it's just helpful to have cross references. Verses sixteen and seventeen of chapter eight, man, these are these are great commandments here. Maybe we could just stick with this stuff. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these are things that I hate, says the Lord. And then later we, we get sort of a summation of this at the end of verse 19. Therefore, love truth and peace. How about that statement, Christopher? 
Ben, I would ask you to repeat that if the listener couldn't just hit that back button. You know, what is it? 10 seconds, 30 <laughs> seconds, whatever you've got. Go back and listen to that again. Love, truth, and peace. Jesus said something like that too, right? Yeah. He says the two great commandments, right? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. On this hang all the law and the prophets, right? And that's very similar to these statements here where you could you could say, hey, all of this other stuff can be extracted from these statements. You know, that reminds me of a great little book. And I mean, it is a really short book. It's called The Greatest Thing in the World. And it's by Henry Drummond. And The Greatest Thing in the World, can you guess what it has been? Bacon? <laughs> it's love. Okay, okay. You okay. would not make a good Muslim then. <laughs> I love bacon. <laughs> so I, I had a Syrian professor. He was a visiting professor at BYU when I was at BYU who, who would say, I could never be a good Muslim. I love bacon too much. He taught me how to make jalapeno and cheese stuffed shrimp wrapped in bacon on the grill. I mean, that was That's, just incredible. Which is not kosher either, Christopher. <laughs> no, it's not. It's really not. So what this book is saying is that if you would just follow the first commandment that says love God, you wouldn't need any other commandments because you would be doing all those things anyway. That's the premise of the book. It's a really good book. It's one of those, it's right up there with as a man thinketh by James Allen. I think it's James Allen. In terms of packing a punch in such a short number of pages, right? Really good stuff. Okay. So, we're getting into second Zechariah here, Christopher. And this gets Jesus-y, doesn't it? This is quoted by New Testament authors quite a bit at several points here. Okay. Yeah. So, in chapter 9, in 9 through 12, we get, your king comes to you riding on a donkey. Okay. So, this is this specifically the verse that's referenced when Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding the donkey. You know, we say Palm Sunday and, and all that stuff. But there's some interesting verses that follow this. And it says, and the war horse, there's horse again, Christopher, but here it's used in, you know, in relation to war and, and the power of, of the nations that oppose the Lord. Well, if you remember the first time I brought up horses, Ben, was I was chastising myself because I'm recording this nonviolent podcast, right? <laughs> this uh, this and and the horses are usually associated with armies, you know, with military, but not necessarily. Again, we've sure. given a sense of the mystical use of horses, even though, again, I'm really just only scratching the surface, and not because I'm holding back. It's because I'm I don't know, and I'm really curious, you know. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's why we have this stipulation here. It's not just horse, right? This is specifically the war horse, right. and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall command peace to the nations. What verse is that? That's verses nine through twelve. I kind of skipped a I little remember bit in that. them, but you know, it's hard from a Christian perspective to get away from Jesus on these verses because this oh, yeah. is, you know, this this just yells Jesus at us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, it's uh, I noticed that verse too, or those verses, and I decided I, I was going to say, and now I'm saying it. These are now my favorite verses after Hosea seven one, or is it one seven? Hosea 1 7, which reads, But I will have pity on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow, or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. And then we have now these two verses. Will you read them again, Ben? Your king comes to you riding on a donkey, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. I mean, I think we can draw a straight line between these two verses. Yeah, absolutely. You know, 
Now, there's an interesting thing about the riding with the donkey here. Yeah. Because it does show peaceful intention, right? As contrasted by the war horse, especially when we brought in Hosea 1-7, right? And this is mentioned in the Gospels, of course, Matthew and John. You know, this is cited in terms of Palm Sunday. But the version in Matthew, and maybe this should wait for the New Testament, the version in Matthew doesn't take into account the parallelism in the Hebrew poetry. So that, that kind of makes it more of a, a here and now thing, right? This is Hebrew poetry in the Old Testament, the, New, the Hebrew Bible. And so donkey is equivalent to cult. So it really has Jesus riding on two donkeys at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> Matthew does. But this one, yeah, it's, it, oh, we're talking right. about the same animal. Yeah. <laughs> 910. I'm going to read this straight out of my commentary. The divine warrior demilitarizes the nations within the vast sweep of his dominion from the river, which is what we get in the text, meaning the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. And we can compare that with Psalms 46, 8 through 9. This is good stuff. And then we get in verse 13, Greece. I mentioned earlier, Greece shows up here. Verse 13, the Greeks are in Joel 3, verse 6, right? And then by the time we get to the book of Daniel, which is early second century, we have a Hellenistic kingdom and they're the only enemies of Israel at that point. Now, going to chapter 10, Ben, I remember recently there was a verse. I couldn't remember the exact wording. Maybe you'll remember it. There was a verse that caused people... Cows. Listen, you cows. Cows. <laughs> you cows. That's right. Listen, you cows. Do you remember where that was? I can't remember now. I want to say Obadiah. Listen up, you cows and Obadiah. Yeah. So, here we have in chapter 10, verse 3, my anger is hot against the shepherds and I will punish the leaders. Okay, nothing like, listen up, you cows, right? But then if I look at the the footnote, right, it turns out that could be, or male goats. <laughs> is it leaders or is it male goats? Or, or could it be cows? I don't know. But this is, sometimes this is really fun. This is such a fun book or library. So I'm going to go to chapter 12 now, Christopher. Verse 10 here talks about the one pierced. You know, it's unclear the reference really is unclear as, as who this one pierced is, but the Hebrew suggests that it's actually the Lord that's pierced. And so that's why in the Gospel of John 19, verse 37, he identifies this one pierced as Jesus. Of course. Yeah, I, I see that. I, yeah. As soon as you said somebody was pierced, I thought, okay, this is going to be a great verse for, for the New Testament. Yeah. Well, that comes up in chapter 13 too. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm not sure if you have some other things about 12, but that comes up in chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. We have this statement, these are the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Strange discrepancy in the translations here. NRSV says that the wounds are on your chest. And in the KJV, it says they're in your hands, right? So you can see how like oh, the KJV yeah. would want to say, oh, this is – the wounds are in your hands. Obviously, this is talking about Jesus. Now, a wound on your chest could also be, you know, Jesus being pierced by the spear. What is so fascinating to me is to then look at the footnotes and find out what the Hebrew says. Because the Hebrew says, wounds between your hands, and now all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's how it could be on your chest or it could be in your hands. Right. It could be translated either way. And you would think at first, how could you translate this in these two different ways? Well, when the Hebrew says wounds between your hands, okay, where is that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just interesting, you know, how this becomes Jesusified or something, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and we'll get into that more when we go into the New Testament. But the only other thing I was going to say about this chapter, and it's really 12, 13, and 14. I just wanted to point out that in those three chapters, you get the day of the Lord 17 times. Mm. 
And so we're looking forward here to some kind of culmination in God's victory, right? As a divine warrior, right? That's how it's showing up in Old Testament terms, right? And then, of course, after that divine victory, this paradisiacal aftermath, right? And so that's a theme here. Yeah, chapter 14 is very much the apocalyptic language. It's associated with the second coming yeah. in the Christian tradition, but also in the Latter-day Saint tradition as well. So, Before we go to 14, in 13.1, we get a fountain. Mm. And this is one of two references to this fountain in Zechariah, to a river of God, right? That flows from Jerusalem, from the temple, right? And it's, of course, for the cleansing of the people. And it's interesting because this is the fountain that Jesus is comparing himself to, the life-giving stream, right? The fountain of living waters. This is where that comes from. Would this be the cosmic fountain that flows out from under the, the tree in the garden too? It would be the same thing, right? That's something that shows up in this week's reading too, right? Is that that mountain, that mount that where the temple is, is the cosmic mountain. Yeah. In 1410, we get a loft on its site, right? After the upheaval that happens, Jerusalem is left standing high and alone. And so that kind of image where Jerusalem is high and alone it really is part of this Near Eastern mythological worldview where the Temple Mount is the cosmic mountain. The holy city is atop the Temple Mount, and that is the cosmic mountain, which is connecting heaven and earth. It's the place where heaven and earth connect and where God lives. Yeah, and the top of that mountain is also, you know, the Garden of Eden or whatever, too. Exactly, as we see in Mount Purgatorio in Dante's Divine Comedy. So, Christopher, the book of Zechariah kind of closes out in verse 20 with talking about horses again. <laughs> yeah. It's so appropriate. You know, one last thing, Ben, on Zechariah before we end the recording. You know, the only book we have left in the Bible is Malachi. Our next episode is on the four chapters of Malachi. Very short reading. Doesn't mean we won't have a lot to say. But there is a sense in which we could see Malachi as an appendix to Zechariah. So that's something to think about. Hmm. It looks like there there are clues here that that look like this could just that could just be an appendix to Zechariah, and maybe that because it's it's a booklet, right? I mean, it's four chapters, right? And I'm getting that from verse one of chapter nine because there's this introductory formula the way it starts, and that kind of unites the two parts, you know, of Second Zechariah. And it's also showing up at the beginning of Malachi. So it looks like Malachi, because it begins with that same formula, could be viewed as an appendix to, we could see it as an appendix to Zechariah. And that's all I've got until next time, Malachi. Yeah. How about you, Ben? That's it. That's Zechariah. All right. We've covered some some great ground here in terms of pure religion, you know, true religion, pure and undefiled and nonviolence. And that's what we're all about. This is good stuff. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Yes, love, truth, and peace. No war horses, but yes, horses. Well, we're going to get to the <laughs> bottom of these horses one of these days. Thank you, Ben, for being with me. Thank you for listening, and thank you to our to all the volunteers that that make up the LDPS team, the Latter Day Peace Studies team, social media, podcast editing. Ben, you you do so much more than just record this. You know, you and I are studying. You know, maybe twenty hours a week to to get on the mic for a couple of hours, and we really enjoy it. And and you know, we we've gotten so much out of it, and we're getting to the end here. And we've gotten so much out of the Old Testament. Looking forward. To to the New Testament and having maybe not the background that somebody like Matthew had because he obviously knows the Old mm. Testament like the back of his hand, but we're a little better equipped now to, to read Matthew than, than we were last time, right? Yeah. 
Definitely. I remember thinking last time, I thought, I am not qualified to read Matthew. I don't know the Old Testament well enough. So now, hopefully I know it well enough to read Matthew. And we'll see you next time for Malachi. Thanks for being with me, Ben. Thanks for listening. And thanks to all our volunteers. For Latter-day Peace Studies, I'm Ben Peterson. And I'm Christopher Hurtado.